It's Maya Geis with part three of Sugar Ball, Behind the Book, a companion podcast series where I talk to R. Lee Proctor about his new book, Sugar Ball, a novel of Negro League baseball. In today's episode, I talk to R. Lee about the harsh realities for Negro League players. Themes like prejudice, discrimination, and resilience define their journey on and off the field. During this pivotal era in baseball history, the game was more than just a sport. It was a battleground for equality, and the only opportunity many players had at a life. That's all there is, son. The whole ball of wax in a nutshell. That's the winner's share, as promised. The man saying this is Bascom Crawley. 315 pounds of sweaty, grinning bluster and hoopla sitting behind a beat-up desk in the box office. His clan robe is hanging from back of the door. You know what pains me the most, Mr. Crowley, says Cool Papa Bell. What's that, boy, says the fat man. I guess he doesn't notice the Cool Papa's about the same age he is. You don't think I'm smart enough to post one of our boys across from the box office. From 11.35 to 1.15 p.m. when it shut down, the box office sold 1,123 adult tickets at 50 cents a ticket and 708 kids tickets at 10 cents a ticket for a grand total of $632.50. Half of that minus 10% for expenses, that would be what you promised, the winner's share, is $284.63. And yet, what have we got here in the box, asked Cool Papa, $120? That's not even half what we're owed. Bascom never stopped smiling. Well, I think you boys misremembered our agreement. Plus, Expenses ran a little higher than we expected. Ask me, says Bascom. This is pretty good money for some colored boys playing a sandlot game in the middle of the afternoon in Alabama. Couldn't make nearly this much sweating in a cotton field. Cool Papa warily picks up the cash and hands it to Booker, who puts it in the team cash box. Bascom smiles his biggest smile yet and says, You boys were a damn good attraction. Y'all come back next year. I'm so glad to be back at the table with you to talk about Sugar Ball, of course. Um, and let's just kick this right off and let's talk about the Negro Leagues. Because, um, of course, blacks could play baseball. They played a lot of baseball and they played very well. But they weren't allowed to play alongside their white counterparts for right. um, the reasons we all know. Um, sort of racial inequity and segregation in the South and across the U.S., actually. Sorry for that matter. Um but having the Negro League not only gave them the opportunity to play, um, play on their own terms, um, but to play on even terms with their white counterparts, proving that they were just as good, it also gave them visibility. It gave them the opportunity to be seen, and that's why we're still here talking about these players today. They're, right. you know, they're legends. That's true. Um, I don't know if you know the story, but like one of the truly horrifying things about racial segregation is there was one incident— one incident that happened in the 19th century that caused baseball to be segregated. There was a player named Cap Anson. He was like, he's in the Hall of Fame. He's one of the most, uh, you know, like uh, legendary players of all time in terms of his ability. But before before this one incident, there it was uh, Af- African-Americans and, and white 
guys were playing on on, on the same field. Mm-hmm. And he came out of the field one time. He was playing for, I believe, the Chicago White Sox. And he looked around and he saw a black player and he said, he said, get that N-word off the field. Mm. And just because everybody took him seriously mm. and he was who he was, it that was the hinge, you know, from that moment on, uh, black people weren't allowed to play in the same field as as white people. Mm. A little influence can go a long way. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's uh, oh, I, you know, it, it's, it's. Strange that that then that then then that thought became embedded in the whole culture, and because you know the country was vastly horribly racist at that mm-hmm. time, it was just okay. Well, that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know the great thing is in the nineteen starting the nineteen twenties, a group of black men and women uh, decided that there was going to be a league where black men would get a chance to play. And they made it work, you know, almost through force of will. But people wanted to see them, and the baseball was great. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They had tons of fans. Um, people would come out just to see certain players play. Sure. And, you know, every year they would have a thing called the East-West All-Star Game, mm. and they'd get 40,000, 50,000 people mm-hmm. at Yankee Stadium. I mean, or Comiskey Park mm-hmm. to come out and see people. So it was a, it, it was a, real, it was a real thing. And being a professional athlete, that's hard enough, right? right. Physically, emotionally. Um, but these players in the Negro Leagues had to p- deal with a myriad of other challenging conditions, challenging, <laughs> almost feeling too light a word. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, playing multiple games a day in the heat. Um, can you talk a bit about some of the just like general strife faced by these players? Sure. I mean, the life of a Negro League baseball player was uh, when you think of Baseball now, it seems almost impossible. The The big business of Negro League Baseball was what they call barnstorming, mm. which is like the, a typical Negro League would play somewhere between 30 and 40 games as part of the league. But a team like the Pittsburgh Crawfords or the Kansas City Monarchs would play 350 games a year. Mm. The point of the league was to uh, publicize the team's so when they went on tour, they would uh, be that people would know about them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what that means is, if you're a Negro League player, that means that you were on the road, basically all year long, traveling in a rattle trap bus, eating greasy spoon food when you could get it, sleeping either uh, you know in second rate, third rate hotels or in the homes of the people in the town. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, for a while, the Kansas City Monarchs actually uh, towed their own lighting system so they could set up because they would often play three games a day. Mm. They would play uh, an 11 o'clock game, then they play a 2 o'clock game, then they play a twilight game that usually lasted seven innings. Mm. So, and then they get back on the bus in their dirty uniforms and uh, travel to the next play. It's probably maybe 400 miles away. Mm. You know, the life was just, I, I, don't, know how, I don't know how they did it. You yeah. know, they just did it because they had to do it. Right, you just adapt. Yeah, yeah. But having, you know, carting your own lighting system around, that feels like quite a, that feels very advanced in general, <laughs> right? Uh, well, they were, the, they were the only team that did that. Mm. But, uh, yeah, they were, the Monarchs were in the 40s were, of course, 
Satchel Paige played for them. They were the premier team uh, of that of that uh, hmm. uh, decade. Mm-hmm. And there's a, I mean, there's an a part in the book where the the team they can't stay at the hotel that they were scheduled and booked to stay at because right. by the time they got there, it changed ownership. Now it was a whites only establishment. Yeah. And there's this really amazing scene where they go to camp on a field essentially, and they run right into Cab Calloway's band. Yeah, that's that. That was uh, one of the gems I got from my research. Completely true. Mm. Uh, when a team like the Crawfords or the, the Monarchs. Uh, they carried camping gear mm-hmm. because they couldn't depend on finding a hotel where they could stay. Mm. So uh, they would, if they couldn't find a place to stay, they would find uh, an open field. Sometimes they'd find a graveyard. Mm. Graveyard, great place to stay, not likely to be bothered. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, 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 and... Not by living people. <laughs> in, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, in my book... Uh, they find this field that Cab Calloway's band is 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 there because the the, the black big bands had almost the exact same set of problems mm-hmm. that the Negro League teams had. Mm-hmm. They were traveling oftentimes to the south. They were dealing with unfriendly hotels. Um, they were doing a series of one nighters, so they had to be one place, you know, and then four hundred miles away the next uh, day, mm-hmm. and. Uh, an, another kind of interesting sidelight of that uh, of that scene is that uh, black musicians loved baseball. They liked to play baseball, and they were very enthusiastic fans of Negro League baseball. Mm-hmm. And the Negro League players were fans of the black big bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of them played musical instruments. When they'd be on the bus on these long tours, they would play music mm-hmm. to amuse themselves. So it was kind of a mutual admiration society. And can we talk a bit about also the financial aspects of the game? Because, you know, these players and the teams, they made money when they won a game, but just winning a game didn't necessarily guarantee payment. And even if you got paid, it didn't mean you were getting everything you were promised. That's part of the barnstorming life was that they'd be passing through, like in my book, they're in Schofield, Alabama, and they were promised X amount of money. And as often happened... You know, they were at the mercy of the promoter, whether they get paid uh, the amount of money they were owed. Because a lot of times, uh, in my book, uh, the sheriff is also a Klansman, and their attitude is you should be happy getting this amount of money mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, they, they, it's, they were constantly being cheated. And of, of fellow like um, Satchel Page, one of his motivations when this fellow shows up with a suitcase of $30,000 is, I've got cash. You know, uh, Page was a guy who was constantly being promised, oh, you know, I'll pay you $5,000 to come to North Dakota to play in this tournament, blah, blah, blah. And then after it's over, he'd be, well, here's 1500 and be happy to to get it. It Mm -hmm. was really... uh, Another aspect of that that's kind of tragic is the fact that um, the Negro League players usually had contracts, but if a Negro League player was injured in a way that made him unable to play, the team, would, the bus would pull over to the side of the road and they'd put him off the bus wherever he was. Mm. And, you know, what are you going to do, sue us? I mean, so the contracts was a bit of a joke. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. 
-hmm. When Jackie Robinson came into the league, uh, Branch Rickey took a lot of heat because he signed up a lot of Negro League players, and the other owners did too, and they refused to honor the Negro League contracts. Mm -hmm. And he should have done that, but the owners themselves didn't honor their own contracts a lot of time. So it's, you know, cut both ways there. So there's an, another anecdote that sort of features prominently in the book. It sort of signals as a as a bit of a fork in the road for the players. Um, but there's the scene where Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Cool Papa Bell, and Peanut all visit Clark Griffith, who owned the Senators. Um, and they think that he's offering them a place on the team because in their minds they know, well, we're better than every other player that they've got. No. Um, and so, of course, he's going to offer us a serious deal. Um, and then go into this meeting and discover that actually that's not the case. Right, right. The dynamic of the scene is that uh, the offer to go to the Dominican Republic is already on the table. Mm -hmm. But what the players really want is to play in the big leagues, Mm -hmm. of course. So they're at this game where they're playing a team of white all-stars, which is something that actually happened. And they discover that there's a scout in um, in the stands who has been brought there by a reporter who is uh, based on a guy named Lester Rodney, who was the sports writer for the Daily Worker, the communist newspaper, which was the only paper in America that was actively uh, lobbying for big league teams to sign black players. Anyway, so the players discover they're being scouted. And of course they think, wow, we're being scouted by the senators. Senators are a terrible team. If they get Josh Satchel and Cool Papa on their team, they instantly become... Uh, a contender and probably a pennant winner. Those three players alone could have turned it around. Mm. So they tell Dr. Ibar, the guy from the Dominican, that, no, that's okay. We want to go. We think we got a shot at the big league, so we're going to do that. So they visit Clark Griffith. Um, They go into the meeting thinking that they're going to be, um, you know, they have a shot at, at making the big leagues. And Griffith, who has brought them to Washington uh, in and what he thinks is good faith, is absolutely shocked when these players presume to think that he wants them on the senator's team. What he really wants them for, and once again, this is based on fact, is that Griffith is forming what was called a Zulu cannibal team. Mm -hmm. Zulu cannibal teams were teams of black men who would dress up in sort of caricatures of Zulu costumes, grass skirts, body paint, mm-hmm. weird wigs, that kind of stuff, and and play exhibition baseball games, oftentimes against the House of David, which was a team of, um, of um, you know, like rabbis, uh, Jewish Jewish men who with long beards and that kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, he's, he thinks he's got a good deal because he's going to give them a, they can have this Zulu team and they can be part owners and, you know. And, of course, our three heroes are completely aghast at this. And that's when they, they walk out and go and take the, take the opportunity to go to the Dominican Republic. But um, Griffith tells them that, look, Washington, D.C. is a southern city. You know, Washington, D.C. was originally part of Virginia. And he says... You know, he, he says he, he, he mouths the common prejudice of the time, which is that if I put African-Americans on my team, no white people will ever show up again. 
Mm. And, uh, you know, I'm likely to be lynched if I do that. Which, of course, the owners thought that in 1947 with Jackie Robinson. And nothing happened except the Brooklyn team got its biggest attendance in its history that year. Because mm-hmm. if I'm going to watch, you know, Zulu Cannibals uh, play a team of of what you yeah. described, like then surely I can watch white people play black people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, one of the weird things is uh, Satchel Paige and Dizzy Dean had a deal after the baseball season ended. Uh, Satchel would round up eight other uh, black players and Dizzy Dean would get eight white players or, you know, they'd get 15 apiece and then they'd barnstorm, hmm. play each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a proven, it's it's a, a fact that over the years, I think there was something just over 500 games played between white all-stars and black all-stars. Hmm. The black all-stars won about 65% of those games. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So... And it's funny, too, because, I mean, once the players go back and sort of describe to this man, Dr. Abar, who's offering this money to go to the Dominican, um, what had happened, Dr. Abar himself, you know, he describes Clark Griffith and really all of the owners of these professional baseball teams as lacking moral fortitude, right? They don't have the sort of inner courage and strength in order to just even try it out. And he also describes him as nothing more than a merchant selling a product. You know, he's nothing more, nothing less. Yeah. Um, and that becomes very clear. They weren't doing this with any kind of higher moral ground or purpose. That's true. They, that's exactly right. The The irony is that uh, when, uh, you know, just how strange this whole thing is, what a hall of mirrors it is, when Branch Rickey finally uh, integrated baseball, he was when it be, when it became wildly successful. He was accused of doing it for mercenary reasons. Well, you just wanted to do that so that uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers would uh, get all these uh, African American fans who would you know it's like it's, it's it's no matter where you looked in there it was it was stupidity and hypocrisy. <laughs> hmm And all that to say that really you know these players played for their love of the game. Um, at one point in the book, there's a quote from Josh Gibson who says, God made me stand up there at home at home place and face down that pitcher and hit the baseball so far that people will feel the pleasure I get in doing it. Yeah. And it's that joy, I think, that really catalyzed a lot of these players through all these different challenges and obstacles um, and just the, I'm sure, just physical, mental pain of it all. Yeah. I, I, there are two books I have of... Um um, players being interviewed about their lives. And it's pretty clear that nobody would go through what they had to go through to play unless they felt a joy in what they were doing and they wanted to share that joy with the, with the, with the public. They weren't in it for the money. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, and the physical, re- the, the, the terrible uh, conditions they had to go through. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, at the end of the day, it's surprising how many of them look back on those days as being, you know, we were doing what we loved and the people we were doing it for loved us for doing it and we were giving pleasure to them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that really resonates. And just on a final note, um, just an interesting anecdote is the fact that after Jackie Robinson, you know, he helped integrate baseball, a surprising number of players really missed the Negro Leagues. They missed playing in front of black crowds. 
Um, and they were all of a sudden thrust onto these teams where they were treated as second-rate citizens, even among their teammates. So, you know, all the camaraderie is just gone. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that was kind of shocking to me because the way that history has been written is finally these black players were allowed to play in the white leagues and oh, what a great thing it was. And uh, a lot of the players said, well, when we were in the Negro Leagues, uh, we would go into a city, we'd be welcomed by the people, everybody would dress in their Sunday best, they'd come out to the games, the games themselves would be a big social event in the town. We were playing with our com- with our with our friends and comrades and people we come up with. So then, okay, now baseball is integrated. Um, they would uh, oftentimes be drafted by a team like, say, the St. Louis Cardinals. Cardinals would then send the player down to Mobile, Alabama, mm. to play on the uh, AAA team for the Cardinals. There'd be one black guy on on that team. Mm. He would. He would have the experience that Jackie Robinson had, only there was no press to cover it. Mm. He would be, they'd throw garbage at him. He'd be, you know, it, it was a lone, there would be nobody to, nobody to room with. Mm. It was a lonely, really fraught situation that took decades to, to overcome. Yeah. So there's a kind of poignance about the whole thing, too. Mm-hmm. And we have to be, I think, I mean, I don't play baseball, but <laughs> we have to be so grateful for those those players that were on the front lines and stuck it out so that the second generation and the third and the fourth and the hundreds that have come since um, can enjoy their real place on the team now. Yeah, well, there's a reason that 42, Jackie Robinson's number, is the only number that has been retired by every Major League Baseball team. Mm -hmm. And there's a Jackie Robinson day where everybody, you know, wears that number and honors him because it's funny, a lot of players today don't have, they don't study the game and they don't, but they, but they, to a person, know who he is and what he did Mm -hmm. and how hard it was and how much he suffered and how his life ended prematurely because of the stress that he went through. And so they look back on that and honor it because they know the only reason they have a chance to play is because of what he and Branch Rickey did. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of speaks to this idea of how meaning and purpose, right, your love for something is so tied to the sense that you belong. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, the people who the people we love are the people who do what they love and share that love with us, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, that goes for musicians and athletes and uh, the people who are in it for the money don't last. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We see it across across sectors. <laughs> but thanks, Rich. Um, I'm looking forward to catching up with you next time. Well, great. Me too. Sugar Ball, Behind the Book, is produced and edited by Matthew Solari and hosted by myself, Maya Geis. This episode's version of Take Me Out to the Ball Game was arranged and performed by E. Jammy Jams. You can find Sugar Ball, a novel of Negro League baseball, everywhere books are available. To learn more about R. Lee, visit richlyspun.com.